Before we enter into the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment uh, in prayer. It's also an opportunity to confess any sins. Remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's not just some automatic, um, robotic, rote thing that we repeat and that we read and we say this is just something that, you know, just kind of ritual that, that, that's a promise from God. That, that, that's, that's real life. It's a promise from God, and it's rich because we're sinners. I wish it wasn't true, but that's just who we are, fallen, broken sinners. And we have a great tendency, not just a tendency, but an appetite to wander away from the one who loves us more than anybody else, our God. And so 1 John 1, 9 is a great promise that when we wander, when we sin, which we do in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we have a faithful God, though we are faithless. We have a loving God, though we, though we are unlovable. And in His great love and mercy and compassion, He forgives us. He forgives His children. That's 1 John 1, 9. And we, when we are returned to fellowship, then we're returned to the filling of the Holy Spirit, and our minds are opened to the things of God, to the things that are otherwise blind to us. We are otherwise blind to it. It's darkness to us. It's meaningless. We, we, we read the text, I mean, it just, we cannot perceive spiritual truth, which is the truth that has eternal significance, unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. As simple as that. And if we are walking outside of the realm of the spiritual life, which is what we do when we're in sin, unconfessed sin, then we can't perceive it. And that's why we go to the Lord each time before we study the Word of God, first to confess our sins, and then to ask Him to make the things that are otherwise unperspicuous to us, perspicuous and visible, that we may have eyes to see the things that are not seen. So let's take a moment of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather that we may worship you, that we may worship you well. Open our minds to see the spiritual realm, to see your law, your truth, and edify us by it, strengthen us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we wrap up the Mosaic Covenant. And what I'd like to do is circle back to where we began in our study of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, we began this study by looking at a, an argument that is made against Christians, an attack against Christians. This is actually a very common attack. You find it in universities, you find it in the media, you find it in the culture, and I was surprised to see that you find it actually in the practice of law as well. It's a common attack against the Christian. The attack that I'm referring to is the, the, um, the attack against Christianity, which is based on the argument that we cherry-pick things out of the Bible. I like this thing, and I don't like that thing. 
And so I like this thing, so I'm going to believe that and follow that. But this other thing I don't really like. And so I'm going to kind of dismiss that other thing. And the, 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 the thing that I was surprised about in the practice of law was a, a piece of litigation in the state of California where the state of California was suing a baker by the name of Kathy Miller because she didn't want to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because she's a Christian and she believes in the biblical belief of marriage between one man and one woman. And we saw the lawyer's arguments, the lawyer for the state of California. And I want you to understand the import of representing a client. When you represent a client, you speak for the client. You have the authority of the client. And so when a lawyer represents a state one of the most powerful states in all of the union. I'd argue Texas is more powerful, but that's a topic for another day. But a, a very populous state, a very powerful state, California, and you're the lawyer for the state, you speak on behalf of the full faith and credit and the power of the state of California. And so when the lawyer makes this line of argument, he's making it on behalf of tens of millions of people. He's making it on behalf of the state of California, and to refresh your memory, his argument was an argument that he was, or a line of questioning that he was pursuing in a deposition where he had Mrs. Miller under oath, and he said, do you try and follow everything that the Bible says? Her response was, I do my best, but I'm a sinner, but I do my best. Then he asked the question, which is really what he was driving at, do you follow some of the eating practices from the Old Testament in terms of not eating pigs? not eating shellfish, etc. We saw this roughly about a month ago. And essentially what the lawyer's line of question was leading towards, he was trying to defeat one of the elements in her case. In order for her to rely on the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion, she had to prove that she had a sincerely held religious belief. And so the lawyer for the state of California the state of California, was challenging her belief in the Bible, was saying, you don't really believe the Bible. That's why he's trying to get it on the record. The court reporter is, is transcribing what the question and the answer. He's trying to create evidence in the record that she's a faker, that she's a hypocrite. So that then, when, when they're before the judge, they can say, judge, she had no basis to stand on, on, on the First Amendment because she really didn't have a sincerely held religious belief. This is a common argument. It's a common argument in the universities. It's a common argument in the halls of government. It's a common argument in the judicial system, as we see here by this lawyer making an argument, or a line of questioning, so that he can make an argument in his in his case there in the state of California. And this argument extends beyond the dietary restrictions of the law, but beyond the, the, the kosher requirements in the law. It extends to the Sabbath, for example, right? I mean, Christians are, are, are criticized. Well, how come you're picking weeds and your flower bed on the Sabbath? How come you fired up that weed eater and you're, you're doing a little weed eating On the Sabbath, aren't you violating the law? How come you don't do animal sacrifices 
anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the argument. Now, Mrs. Miller won her case, and the state's argument challenging the, her, her faith really didn't go anywhere, but I think at some point it will. I, mean, I don't know what the lawyer did who was representing her if he just shut down the deposition and said, no, don't answer that question. We're not gonna, we're, I'm not going to let you pursue that line of, of questioning. I don't know what happened in that deposition. But what I do know is <clears throat> this argument is growing. It's permeating all aspects of the culture, just like we have all kinds of darkness, all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of rebellion against God that is permeating all aspects of the culture. Our schools, our legislatures, our courts. And so what I want you to understand is the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. That's what this is all about. I mean, the lawyer didn't use those words. He didn't use the, 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 the words, the, the Sinaitic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, but that's what we're ultimately talking about in this. The reason I cite this case for you from California is so that you can see how the unbelieving world uses the Mosaic Law, how they use it as a weapon against Christians, especially against Christians who don't know their Bible, against Christians who don't know the significance of the Mosaic Law. Now, I'm not saying that Mrs. Miller didn't know her Bible or didn't know the significance of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant. I, I, I don't know anything about Mrs. Miller's doctrinal understanding. What I'm saying is that we as Christians need to understand the significance of the law. What is it? What is it not? How does it apply? How does it not apply? We all know that the lawyer's line of questioning was bogus, was false. But I want you to understand why, why it was bogus. The short answer is that the Mosaic Law doesn't apply to church-age believers. That's the short answer. The Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, whatever language you want to use, the Torah, that doesn't apply to church-age believers. That's the short answer. But that doesn't make it irrelevant. That doesn't mean that the law has no significance to us. There's a distinction in the law between the revelatory aspects of the law and the regulatory aspects of the law. The revelation in the law and the regulation in the law. There's a distinction between those two. And we'll see that a little later this morning. Before I get into that distinction, let me talk about why the Mosaic Law does not apply to the church-age believers, to, to any church-age believers. The most obvious reason why the law doesn't apply to us is it wasn't given to us. Right? It wasn't addressed to church-age believers. It was given to Israel. We saw the five purposes or five of the purposes for the Mosaic Law last time. Number one, to reveal God's holiness. He was revealing it to the Israelites. Moses didn't deliver the law to the Egyptians. They just left Egypt. He didn't deliver it to the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Mesopotamians. He delivered it to the Israelites. And so the first of the five reasons for the law that we saw last time was to reveal God's holiness to the Israelites. The second reason was to show the Israelites the inadequacy of their own righteousness. The third reason was to point the Israelites to the way of salvation, to the way of fellowship with Yahweh. 
the covenant name of God, which we studied in detail. The fourth reason was to unify Israel as a nation, like a, like a constitution, the way our constitution unifies us, but much, 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 much more significant than a United States constitution. The law was designed to unify the, the tribes of Israel, so they weren't just a collection of tribes, to unify them as the nation of Israel. And the fifth reason that we saw was to set Israel apart from the other peoples, that they would be a kingdom of priests, to use the language from Exodus, distinct from all the other nations. The Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Law, the Sinai Law, was given to Israel. It wasn't given to us. It wasn't given to Gentiles. So it never applied to Gentiles in the first place. But even if it did, even if the law did apply to Gentiles originally, which it didn't, even if it had applied to Gentiles, it's been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And because Christ fulfilled the law, we're not under it. Christ's apostle, the apostle Paul says in Romans six fourteen. You are not under the law. In other words, you're not under the Mosaic law. You're not under law, but under grace. The dietary restrictions of the Mosaic covenant do not apply anymore. We see this in vivid technicolor, if you prefer that old word, technicolor detail in Acts 10. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 verse 9. The context here of this passage is that God instructs a centurion, a Roman centurion, to summon a Jew. He instructs through an angel the Roman centurion Cornelius. And Cornelius lives in Caesarea, which is on the coast. Cornelius is a Gentile. And God instructs one of his angels to instruct the centurion to summon the Jewish man by the name of Peter, the Apostle Peter. Peter comes to the house, but he does it with a little bit of trepidation. There's some trepidation about that he has fellowshipping with a Gentile. So God, in great detail, in, in, in a kind of a picturesque, picturesque image, he uses food to teach Peter about a new age, about the new age that has come, the age of the church. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 reads like this. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the, household, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the sixth hour is noon. It's lunchtime. Peter's on the house of the centurion, on Cornelius's house praying on the, on the, on the top of the house. Verse 10, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making pre preparations, he fell into a trance. So just get the picture here. The Roman centurion summons, Paul, summons Peter for lunch. Peter comes. Peter goes up to the, to the top of the house, to the rooftop, while the staff, I mean, the centurion's going to have a staff, Right? The staff is preparing the meal. It's, you know, there's a lot going on. They're, 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 they're getting the vegetables, and they're getting the lamb, and they're, they're getting the spices, and the 
They got the, the fire going. They're cooking everything up. They're getting everything ready. Peter's up and he gets a little sleepy. Right? He falls asleep and he's taken into a trance when he's praying on the rooftop. Look at verse 11. And he saw the sky, this is Peter, saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. The sheet comes from the sky, comes down onto the ground, and on top of the sheet are all these animals and birds. In other words, you have this situation where you've got clean animals and unclean animals under the law. Ceremonially clean animals and ceremonially unclean animals. Remember the law made a distinction as part of the dietary rules of the law, the kosher requirements of the Mosaic law. There's a distinction between clean animals and unclean animals. The cow, yes. Steak, no problem. The pig, no. No bacon, no sausage, no, no pork sausage. Venison, no problem. The deer, yes. Rabbit, nope, can't have rabbit. Fish, no problem. Crawfish, that's a problem. Shrimp, that's a problem. Crab, that's a problem. I don't know if they have crawfish in Israel at that time. They do now. But there are these, these dietary restrictions that are in the law, and the sheet comes down. We don't know what the animals are, but all kinds of animals are on the sheet, clean animals and unclean animals. Verse 13, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. God says, eat up. Eat the bacon, eat the steak. Eat the rabbit, eat the venison. Eat the crawdad, eat the tilapia. Keep reading, verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never seen anything, never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now here, we're looking at this passage today. The focus is the dietary restrictions, but I can't help but mention the contradiction in terms, right? I mean, how do you say Lord and no in the same sentence? <laughs> Lord, no. I mean, but you've got to love Peter. I mean... Peter's impulsive, and he's rash, and he's, he's Peter. Remember Peter on the boat? He sees the Lord walking. He's like, call me out there. Peter gets out there walking on the water. And then he starts to doubt, and he starts to sink. Or Peter says, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. No way. Impulsive. And then he denies him three times. And on the last one, he says, I called down a curse from heaven. I don't know him when he says to the, to the, to the slave girl, I don't know him. I mean, Peter's impulsive. Peter's rash. But sometimes I can relate to Peter more than I can relate to Paul. And so Peter says to the Lord, no, I can't eat that stuff. I don't know, I, 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 what do you mean telling me to eat that? I can't eat that stuff. The Lord, who's always gracious, doesn't discipline for Peter for his disobedience there that Peter deserves, that we deserve, that I deserve. 
He doesn't discipline Peter for his, his, diso- for his disobedience there, and instead he teaches Peter. He teaches Peter about the new age. Verse 15, again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleaned, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Not just once. Three times. You remember Peter, right? After Peter denied the Lord three times, and then the Lord is resurrected, and the Lord says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And God says, the Lord says, tend to my flock. Do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. Tend to my flock. Do you love me? And that, that grieved Peter. It hurt him. Tend to my flock. We get the same triple version here. Now the lesson's different. The lesson is, this is a new age. The church is a new age. The age of Israel is distinct from the church age. The lesson is different, but the tri-party or the, the treble lesson, the triple lesson, it's the same pattern. Again, I can relate to Peter. Sometimes I need the Lord to take the belt out three times for me because sometimes I'm stubborn and sometimes I rebel against God and Maybe that's not just me. Maybe that's you too. So the lesson that this age, that the church age is different than the age of Israel, is given to Peter three times. The point is that Peter is free, free to fellowship with the Gentile and to eat his bacon. Free to fellowship with the Gentile and to eat his crawfish po'boy. The kosher requirements don't apply to the church age. That's the lesson there. Paul also makes this clear. He makes clear, it was made clear through Peter, and then Paul comes along and makes it clear as well. He makes clear that the dietary restrictions are out. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, verse 1 reads like this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, Verse 2, by, no mean, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Do you understand the significance? Paul is saying that all food is okay. You want to suck the heads on the crawfish like they do in Louisiana and in in East Texas and Houston? That's your business. That's not a sin is the point. The lesson that is being taught here is that This age is new. The church age is new. The law doesn't apply in the church age. And the only requirement, there is is a requirement with respect to food. There is, if you prefer, a kosher requirement for the church age. I'm using that word kosher in a loose way. There is one requirement. You see it there in the text. 
You see it there in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. What's the requirement? Gratitude. That's the requirement. Gratitude for the food. I hope you say grace before you eat a meal and you thank God for your food. You can do it silently in your mind. You can do it audibly. That's the requirement for this age. Eat any food you want to eat. Some aren't as healthy as others, but that's your business. Eat any food you want to eat, but give thanks. Be grateful to God for the food that he gives you. In addition to the dietary restrictions being out, the Sabbath and festival requirements are also out. They don't apply anymore. Colossians 2, verse 16, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. When Paul refers to festivals in Colossians 2, he's talking about the annual feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. When he refers to the new moon, that was a monthly festival that was for Israel. It's in Numbers 28, verses 11 through 15. When he refers to the Sabbath day, he's talking about Sabbath observance. Sabbath was on Saturday when they weren't allowed to do work. All those things are out. You want to work on Sabbath? That's okay. You don't have to celebrate the New Moon Festival. You don't have to celebrate Pentecost or Passover or Tabernacle. The Mosaic Law foreshadowed Christ. He is the one who perfectly complied with the law. He's the one who fulfilled it. Paul says it so clearly in Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Which brings us to the animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices also do not apply any longer. Hebrews 10 verse 5 reads like this, Therefore when He, the He there is Christ, when Christ comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is Jesus speaking to the Father, telling us all that Jesus came as prophesied in the scroll of the book. He is the fulfillment of the scroll of the book. He is the fulfillment of Hebrew Bible. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of Torah. He is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. And Jesus says, that's me. You want some? That's me. I come as the fulfillment of prophecy. And I announce it boldly to a lost and dying world. In verse 7, verse 7 continues, actually verse 10, by this, the this here, by this will, the will is God's will, by God's will, this is now not Jesus speaking anymore in verse 10, this is the writer of Hebrews speaking, 
by this will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the phrase. Once for all. Once for all the generations. Once for the sin of Adam. Once for the sin of Enoch. Sins of Enoch. Once for the sins of Noah. Once for the sins of Moses and David and Isaiah and Habakkuk and all the Old Testament people. And once for the church age, people. And once for the millennium, people. Once for all ages. Once for all. The animal sacrifices pointed to Christ's coming. He was and is the Lamb of God who took and takes away the sins of the world. And he did it in his body. That's why the text there refers to his body. Because God can't die. The penalty for sin is death, the writer of Hebrews says. God can't die. He's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. So because God loves you so much, he came as a human who can die. He came as the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. And in his own body, he bore our sins for all generations. The animal sacrifices are no longer needed. They're no longer needed because the true sacrifices come, the sacrifice that the animal sacrifices all pointed towards. All these passages point to the reality that the Mosaic Covenant, the law, no longer applies. But it's not irrelevant. Just because the law doesn't apply, the Mosaic Covenant doesn't apply, doesn't mean that it has no significance, that it's irrelevant. There is a very important aspect of the law. This is what takes us to the distinction between, b- between the regulatory part of the law and the revelatory part of the law. This is a very, very important distinction. The revelatory aspect of the law is forever. It's eternal. The regulatory aspect of the law was temporary. Let me explain what I mean. The law was revelatory because it revealed the holiness of God. It revealed God's view, God's standard of right and wrong. Forgive me for being judgmental, but there is right and wrong. I say that sarcastically. I'm not being judgmental. There's right and wrong in every aspect of life. Financial, interpersonal, sexual, in work, in your relationships, in marriage, in church, in leadership. There's right and wrong. And the revelatory aspect of God's law reveals God's view, God's standard of right and wrong. It reviews his standard of morality. It reviews his standard of ethics. Paul says in Romans seven twelve, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul doesn't... I got in trouble for this word one time. I'm going to use it. Paul doesn't poo-poo the law. Okay? I'm not... Poo-poo is a verb. Okay? It means to dismiss. I'm not using a bad word. It means to dismiss something. Paul doesn't poo-poo the law at all. He elevates the law. And he calls it holy and righteous and good. 
For example, the law revealed that God has a standard of how we think about Him. We are to worship Him alone and no one else. And it is wrong to disrespect His name. It is wrong to disrespect the great and awesome name of God. That's revealed in the law. And that truth is from age to age the same. God has a standard for how we are to think of others. I'm not supposed to lust after your stuff. You're not supposed to lust after my stuff. We're not supposed to covet each other's stuff or covet what we have. That standard, God's view of our inter, how, of right and wrong in our interpersonal relationships is forever. Guess what? In God's eternal kingdom, we're not going to covet each other's stuff. In God's eternal kingdom, we're not going to put his name in our expletives. Because that revelatory aspect of the law, which is first revealed in the law, the respect of his name, the principle of not covening, or at least the detail is first revealed in the law. Those things reveal, excuse me, God's standard, God's view of right and wrong in those aspects of life. And that is for all the ages, for the age of Israel, for the age of the church, for the age of the millennium, for the eternal age itself. God also revealed in the law his standard for interpersonal relationships. We're not supposed to be lying towards one another. We're not supposed to murder each other. God has a standard for financial relationships. We're not supposed to steal from each other, cheat from each other. God has a standard for sexuality. Certain sexual acts are wrong. Actually, every single sexual act other than one is wrong. The only sexual act that is right in God's standard is sex between a husband and a wife, which is the way he created it. Beautiful, beautiful, but only to be within that fence, a very small fence between a husband and a wife, a male and a female. I'm not going to say a male born as a male and a female born as a female, because that's redundant. Right? I mean, we think today that we can... Well, let me just get into the last standard that I was going to talk about. The last standard that I'm going to refer to of the revelatory aspect of God's law that was in the Mosaic law that reveals God's view of right and wrong is not in the financial realm. It's not in the interpersonal realm. It's not in the realm of sex. It's in the realm of gender. Because guess what's found in the law? No cross-dressing. I'm not making that up. It's in the law. It's in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. The man is not to dress as a woman, and the woman is not to dress as a man. God's view of gender is laid out in the law. It reveals, the law reveals God's view of all of these aspects And these are the revelatory aspects of the law. You see, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul make a clear distinction between men and women. 
like in the church or in a marriage. Paul continues that distinction that is in the law, the Mosaic law, he continues it into the New Testament in the sense that he draws clear distinctions between the function of a male and the function of a female. And he doesn't blur them to try and create this kind of androgynous creature that, that destroys the distinction that God created in Genesis 1. He made them male and female in his own image, in the image of God. My point is, these are divine truths for every aspect of life, for all the ages, for the church age as well. These truths are permanent and eternal. I think Dwight Pentecost says it well when he says, There was in the law that which is revelatory of the holiness of God. This revelatory aspect of the law is permanent. Holiness does not change from age to age. And that which revealed the holiness of God to Israel may still be used to reveal the holiness of God to men today. That which reveals the holiness of God also reveals the unholiness of men automatically. When God reveals His holiness, it creates an exposure to our unholiness. That's why, as you've heard me mention many times before, that's why when Isaiah is caught up in the vision in Isaiah 6... And he sees Yahweh on his throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. He can't help but think of his own sin. And we might say it's a slight sin. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Gossip is not a slight sin. We shouldn't call it a slight sin. It is a serious sin. But that's the sin that Isaiah thinks of, the sin of his lips. Speaking words that are inappropriate, that are, that are sinful, like gossip. The first thing that Isaiah thinks of when he's in the presence of holiness, right? Because that's what the seraphim declare as they hover around the throne. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. That's the image there in Isaiah 6. The first thing that, that the prophet can think of is his own unholiness. In the presence of perfect holiness. This is what Pentecost is pointing to when he says that which reveals the holiness of God also reveals the unholiness of men. It is this revelatory aspect of the law that Paul referred to as holy and just and good. That's the revelatory aspect of the law, which is eternal and permanent. That applies to many aspects, I should say, all aspects of life. Then there's the regulatory aspect of the law. The regulatory aspect of the law is the part of the law that the lawyer for California was taking to beat over the head of Mrs. Miller. The regulatory aspect of the law. It's the unique regulations that are found in the law, like the dietary restrictions, the kosher requirements, the Sabbath observance the festival requirements, the animal sacrifices, all of the special customs that God gave the Israelites to make them distinct from the Philistines and from the Moabites and from the Egyptians and the Assyrians and from every other nation, or to use the language of the old King James, to make them a peculiar people unto God. The regulatory aspect of the law was temporary. Regulatory aspect. Temporary until the coming of Christ. 
Once Christ came and fulfilled the law, then the purpose for the regulations was completed. They weren't needed anymore. When we say that the Mosaic law doesn't apply to us, we mean the regulations. The revelatory aspect of the law that reveals the holiness of God, that reveals God's view, God's ethic with respect to every aspect of life, that aspect of the law, the revelatory aspect of the law, is for all the ages. But the regulatory aspect of the law, all the various sundry regulations, those don't apply. And that's what we mean when we say that the law doesn't apply anymore. The revelation of God's holiness, his values, his standards, his thinking, his ethics is timeless. It applies to every age, including the church age. Now, an easy way for you to figure out, okay, well, I'm reading something in the Mosaic Law here. I'm reading something in the Old Testament. Is this revelatory or is it regulatory? Which is it? An easy way to determine that is to see whether it's repeated in the New Testament. If it's repeated in the New Testament, then that's easy. right? All the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for Sabbath observance. If it's repeated in the New Testament, then you say, that's easy. It's, that was a revelatory aspect of the law, and it applies to all the ages. All those standards that I mentioned a moment ago, how to think about God, how to think about others, how to conduct interpersonal relationships, how to conduct financial relationships, how to approach sexuality, how to approach gender. All of those aspects of the Mosaic Law are repeated in the New Testament in one way or another. In one form or fashion, they're repeated in the New Testament. And so we say that they are revelatory, still applicable, not regulatory, no longer applicable. Now, we should not say, we should not say that church age believers are not under the law. The law lowercase l. Lowercase l. Maybe I should say it this way. We should not say that church age believers are not under law. Let me take out the definite article. We'll just say, we should not say that church age believers are not under law. Law lowercase l. We're not under the Mosaic law, but we are under law, little l, lowercase l. The New Testament is full of requirements, right? Don't steal, don't get drunk, don't fornicate, don't lie, don't engage in adultery. Follow all the Ten Commandments, except it doesn't have Sabbath observance. The New Testament is full of law, lowercase l, little l. It's full of rules and requirements, that's why many people say, I'm not going to be a Christian because I want to do those things. I like those things. Or as one of my law partners once said, hell is where the, all the cool people are going to be. That's what you say now. You're not going to say it then. No, because it's not going to be cool in any form of that word. No. The New Testament is full of law, lowercase l, little l, full of rules and requirements. So we shouldn't say that church-age believers aren't under law. Those rules and requirements, by the way, that law, little l, for church-age believers, is God's standard again. 
And God gives us rules. It's kind of like, like when our parents gave us rules. You know, when you're little, you think, parents are just giving me rules because they're just giving me rules. And when you get older, you understand, oh, they gave me those rules because they loved me. And those rules that they gave me were protecting me from messed up stuff out there. The same principle with God. These standards that he gives us are to protect us. Sometimes it's to protect us from ourselves. And sometimes it's to protect us from the ways of a wicked world, from the ways of the world that are created by the ruler of this world, the devil. Church-age believers are under law. But that law is different than the Mosaic law. Paul calls it the law of Christ, little little r, I mean little l, lowercase l. He calls it the law of Christ. We are under the law of Christ. He calls it that in Galatians 6.2. And the fascinating thing about the law of Christ is that it's the reverse of the Mosaic law. Stick with me on this. The law of Christ is the reverse of the Mosaic law. What is the Mosaic law? What does God say in the Mosaic Covenant? If you obey me, I will bless you. If, you. if you disobey me, I will curse you. We saw that in detail last time in Deuteronomy 28. You obey me here, I will bless you there. You obey me here, I will bless you there. You disobey me here, I will curse you there. You disobey me here, I will curse you there. We saw that in intricate detail in Deuteronomy 28. It's the reverse for church-age believers. God says... I have blessed you immeasurably. Now obey me. I've blessed you with spiritual blessings that are far beyond anything I ever gave to Israel. Now obey me. Obey me not so that you can receive unity with Christ, unity with God. That is, never, that is not promised in the same way that it's promised in the church age. It's not promised in the same way to Israel that church age believers are in union with God, with the God-man, identified with Him forever. That promise is different than the promise of Israel's relationship with God, which is incredible in and of itself. But our union with Christ, with the God-man, is different and God doesn't say, obey me, don't do this and don't do this and don't do that, and do that and do that and do that, and then you will become unified with the God-man. Then I will give you the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works in the church age. God says, obey me once with an act of faith, trust in Christ, and then I'm just going to shower you with spiritual blessings. And then you're to live your life not to get those spiritual blessings because you already have them. And when I say spiritual blessings, I mean the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit unique to church-age believers. I mean put in union with the God-man, with Christ, unique to church-age believers. I mean a new identity in the God-man, in Christ. I mean members of the royal family of God. I mean royal priests in a fashion that is unique to church-age believers. All of those spiritual blessings are given to us immediately at the moment of faith. And so the, the instruction to us in the church age is to act like it. Act consistent with our identity. The world is right to be focused on identity. Right? Identify, I identify this way. She identifies that way. 
He identifies that way. And the way you identify is what produces your behavior. That's why the devil wants people to identify in a manner that is ungodly. Because if you identify in a manner that is ungodly, then your behavior is going to be consistent with that identity. And so God says, in the church age, if you will obey me once by trusting in my Christ, then you will have that identity of being mine. So act like it. Of being royalty, royal family of God. So act like it. You see, it's the reverse of obey me and then I will bless you. It's I blessed you, so now obey me in the church age. This is the graciousness. This is the graciousness of God. And because God is so gracious, he gives us additional blessings beyond those spiritual blessings that we receive at the moment of faith in Christ. Because I I should be careful to not discount rewards, eternal rewards. That is another form of blessing. And it's true. That blessing comes from obedience. That's true. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. And that blessing... Eternal rewards is a blessing that is incredible because it is, it is a blessing that we will enjoy for eternity. But I must say, the blessing of eternal rewards, as impressive as that is, which will be received for obedience, is very small in comparison to the spiritual blessings that we receive at the moment of faith. Or if I could use occasion words, a lot of the people I worked with were, were from Louisiana, they're they're from Louisiana. Maybe I'd just say that. They say Louisiana. If I could use a Cajun word, it's just laniap. A little extra. The eternal rewards that we're going to have, as incredible as they are, they're almost just like laniap. Extra, a little extra. In comparison to the spiritual blessings, which sadly, we often ignore. Sadly, we often take the spiritual blessings that God showers upon us at the moment of faith. We take them for granted. They become boring to us because we've heard them and they're just like, blah, 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 blah. just words. Our union with the God-man, our, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our new identity in the God-man, members of the royal family, royal priests. We take those for granted, but those are the greater blessings that God showers upon us at the moment of faith. And then our responsibility is to act consistent with the identity that we have in all of those great blessings. We are, live, we are called to live consistent with a new identity. We obey God not to receive those spiritual blessings, but because we've already received them. We obey God in love and gratitude for what He has already done for us. He's done incredible things for us. And so the Apostle John says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. The law of Christ is about love. Let me say that again. The law of Christ is about love. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 4, 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? The reason I don't obey God is because I don't love God. And that's the same thing for you. Come on. Come on. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. 
like the old preacher used to say from centuries ago. It's just true. The reason I wander off into the mud like a fool sometimes, because at least in that instant, I don't love God. I'm embarrassed to say, and it's the same for you. And so the only proper response is to confess it to God. And that's where 1 John 1.9 comes back in with that great promise that even though we're like the prodigal son with the pigs in the mud, God says, I love you. And so act consistent with your identity. That's not your identity. And the way you return to acting consistent with your identity is you confess your sins and then you repent. You run from them. But the reality is when we're disobeying God, we're not loving God. We're loving someone else. We find someone else more interesting. We find someone else more appealing. We find someone else more beautiful. And you know who that someone else is? It's the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. When we're disobeying God, we love ourselves more than we love God. The law of Christ is the principle of love. Now, it's true that the Mosaic law had as its core love also. right? The great Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 Shama Yisrael. They still repeat this in synagogues today on the Sabbath. Shama Yisrael. Now they'll say it. Shama Yisrael. Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. I think we should use the word that God told Moses to use. The name Shama Yisrael. Yahweh Elohenu. Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. It's translated one. Another way to translate echad is alone. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. I really think that's the better focus there of the word echad. My point is that the Mosaic law also had love in it as its core. But the law of Christ is different because God blesses church-age believers with spiritual blessings that he never gave Israel. I'm not saying that the church replaces Israel. I haven't thrown my dispensationalism outside at the, at the window. I'm not saying that at all. The church doesn't replace Israel. But the church has blessings that Israel never had. And Israel has blessings that the church never had. We receive the spiritual blessings in the church age before we do any act of obedience other than the act of obedience of trusting in Christ. So in closing, the Mosaic Covenant, by way of review, just to sum it up, The law, the Torah, the Sinai Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, however you want to say it, the Mosaic Covenant can be summed up like this. The covenant is the manner in which Israel receives the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, the law, is the manner in which Israel would receive the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional, bilateral, and temporary. It's conditional because the specific blessings that God would give Israel were conditioned on their obedience. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. If X, then Y. If this, then that. We saw that in detail in Deuteronomy 28. is also laid out in Leviticus 26. It's conditional. It's also bilateral because both God and Israel have obligations. That's different than the Abrahamic covenant. 
Right? In the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. And there's nothing from Abraham. At least as soon as he leaves Ur of the Chaldees, the Abrahamic covenant vests. Mosaic covenant is bilateral. God has an obligation, and the Israelites have an obligation. And finally, the Mosaic covenant is temporary because the regulatory aspects, the regulations of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, are no longer in effect, though the revelatory aspect of the covenant is not temporary. It's permanent, and it's eternal. Let's close with that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for what you have done. We praise you for what you are doing. And we praise you for what you will do. We praise you because you are an awesome God, a God to be feared, a God to be loved, a God to be praised. We ask that you help us obey you. We're embarrassed by that prayer because it reflects our brokenness, but it's just the truth. We recognize our brokenness, our sinfulness before you, and we ask that you challenge us to submit to you, to honor you. In no way do we ascribe any of our brokenness to you. When we sin, we recognize that it is fully our responsibility and never yours in the slightest, but yet we still ask for your assistance. We praise you for what you have recorded in your word, and we praise you for what you do for us every day. We also thank you for the rain that you gave us this morning. We, you know that we need it. We don't praise the weatherman. We don't praise the, the winds and the meteorologi- meteorological cycles. We praise you because we know you are in control of everything, even down to the slightest raindrop. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.